This is an ABC podcast. G'day, I'm David Lipson coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Coming up on this week, it's been one year since Russian forces invaded Ukraine and shortly we'll hear an incredible story of survival and resilience just one of no doubt millions of individual tales that make up this immense and ongoing tragedy. Also, Roald Dahl and the giant controversy. We look at the decision to edit the author's much-loved children's classics to remove language deemed offensive. But first... It looked like a classic case of pre-budget kite flying to test the public mood before changing government policy. The Federal Treasurer this week setting off a national discussion about superannuation, arguing the almost $53 billion in tax breaks currently available are unaffordable. Right now, we're on track to spend more on super concessions, tax concessions, than the age pension by around 2050. Now, I'm not convinced that that's a sustainable way to get to our destination. There hasn't actually been an announcement just yet, and the Prime Minister says if there is, it won't be major reform, but the opposition says any change would be a broken election promise. Labor made a very clear promise uh, that they weren't going to play with super, they weren't going to change super. It was made unambiguously by the Prime Minister before the election, and election promises like that really count. Australians should be able to count on it. Right now, if you put additional money into your super account, you can potentially save yourself a lot of tax. For example, the top income tax rate now is 45%, but that income attracts just 15% tax if it's put into superannuation. The cost of superannuation through tax concessions is the key issue that the government's trying to address at the moment. And that goes to its overall sustainability as a system. Dr Emily Mullane is a senior fellow at the University of Melbourne and a former regulator at the Australian Securities and Investments Commission. They're pouring so much money in because those individuals and their advisors are making perfectly rational decisions based on the tax settings that we have. So we know through some research that the Financial Review did last year that there's about 30 accounts superannuation accounts with more than $100 million in assets sitting in there. That's a lot. Um, (laughs) That's a lot. And I think research by the Grattan Institute has shown that when you look at what that's actually costing in terms of tax concessions, it's about $200 million per year. The overall cost of tax concessions to the budget is $52.5 billion in this year alone. Billion. Billion. Mm. Right. So, but we're not talking about reining in all of the tax concessions, obviously, and particularly for people with average-sized accounts. What has been talked about this week is potentially, and it's only a potential at this point, capping accounts that, for example, are bigger than $5 million. How would that work? So the way that a cap would work um, and one way that has been proposed is that above a certain amount of total lifetime savings that any amounts that you put into superannuation beyond that are taxed at your ordinary 
income tax rates, your marginal tax rates. And so relative to the concessional amount of superannuation tax, which is 15%, that means that there will be more revenue pouring in to the government coffers and that it sends a clear signal that superannuation savings above a certain amount are clearly beyond what's needed to give people an incentive to save for retirement. And is that in policy terms appropriate in your opinion? Is, is, is for example, $5 million about the right amount that you think super accounts should be taxed, if you do think that? Yes. Yeah, so absolutely, I think that we should be looking at some kind of changes to tax for those people who are accumulating these large sums. As you say, they're not necessarily the bulk of people, but we should not have a system that is permitting these significant concessions for people who've accumulated large sums of superannuation. It should not be a tax planning vehicle. It should be a institution which enables ordinary Australians to save for their retirement. The other area that the government has been focusing on this week is attempting to, if you like, block people in the future, workers, from dipping into their super early. And we saw this in the previous government. The coalition allowed people to pull out money for housing and then during the pandemic allowed them to pull out up to $20,000 for any expenses that they wanted to. Can the system, as we know it, survive under that sort of policy where people can, if you like, raid their super? The system can survive with some kind of modest exemptions from the basic principle that you need to preserve your superannuation until retirement age. The problem is when we start seeing those fairly modest schemes starting to open the floodgates to more dipping in for reasons which are beyond housing, beyond medical procedures. But I would note that there already is a scheme, the First Home Super Saver Scheme, which does permit you to put additional contributions into your super and then take advantage of that lower rate of tax and then withdraw it from the fund to use it for your first home. So the idea of the super system being used to support people to purchase their first home and to have that housing security as they move towards retirement is not completely anathema to the system as we have it today. The Coalition also says that, well, this is your own money. Superannuation is is your own money. And in recent years, the housing market has delivered even better returns in, in some cases than, than superannuation. So why shouldn't you be able to pull money out of your superannuation, spend it on a house? If you sell the house and make a profit, that money has to go back into your super. And indeed that was essentially what the coalition took to the 2022 election. And some kind of modest use of superannuation for housing, given that we know how critical housing security is to one's retirement income, is not a bad idea of itself. The key point to note, though, is that generating that kind of demand through enabling people to use super for housing does not solve the housing affordability crisis. So super is one part of a broader system that takes into account housing and the tax concessions there. 
Is there a danger, do you think, that talking about superannuation changes and perhaps even changing the system will just further undermine people's faith in super as a means of saving for the future? Mm, I'm really wary about calls that say the goalposts are always shifting, we don't know what's happening with superannuation. I don't know that it's an area that's subject to change necessarily more than others. But larger than that, David, I think that the question is, are we okay with the system as it is? Is it working fairly? Is it working sustainably for the majority of people? And I think there are some clear areas where there could be reforms made to be making the system work better. That's Dr Emily Mullane, a senior fellow at the University of Melbourne. One year ago, Russian tanks rolled into Ukraine, starting a conflict that would kill and wound hundreds of thousands and displace millions. And still it goes on. Ukrainians in the nation's capital, Kyiv, woke to the sound of air raid Satellite sirens. Satellite image is said to show a four-kilometre convoy of Russian tanks headed for Kyiv. Ukraine has declared a state of emergency. Four million Ukrainians have become refugees now. Diana Berg is an artist and activist who was living in Mariupol a year ago. I was in that city just before the war broke out and met Diana outside the historic theatre that was later destroyed by the Russians, along with much of the city. Just imagine, you know for sure that they are coming from all the sides. They're approaching, but you don't know where exactly. And then all the connection cuts off. Diana had been here before. She was living in Donetsk in 2014, and when the fighting broke out there, she fled, fearing as an activist she would be targeted. And she set up her new home in Mariupol, where things at the time were relatively calm. That is until February 24 last year. Of course, we did know, especially being in Mariupol, being like living like eight years with this war and very close to it and seeing it, facing it and hearing it. We were not surprised because we knew how it is when you hear the shilling, when you, you see it. We knew that it happened before and we will, you know, fight back. And so when did you realise that it was not like the conflict you had experienced before? Maybe first air raid attack with bombing. That was the first time I understood that there is nothing like we saw before uh, because I was, I thought I'm a kind of a brave and, you know, very courageous woman and an activist. I will fight and resist like I did in Donetsk. The difference was when I realized that there is some shit, sorry for this, (laughs) coming from the sky, from above. And this is something metal, something soulless, something you cannot talk with or argue with. And when you hear it all over around you and you see how it destroys everything, that was the very, you know, very scary moment. Bombed to oblivion, Mariupol is no more. Suddenly, someone shouts, it's a war plane. Bombs outside echo against the walls. First days, it was only on the easternmost district. Then they got a bit closer, then a bit closer. Then every day, 
was a little bit worse, a little bit more scary and a little bit louder, you know, than the previous day. And just then in a week, you find yourself like in a, with no electricity because on 1st of March, all the stations were bombed and there was no electricity at all, meaning no, no connection and no heating, no uh, tap water. And um, you find yourself in a totally different reality. So with no lights, no phones, no heating, and no information about the outside world, Diana and her husband were faced with an impossible choice. There were like two decisions, whether you stay and feel yourself like brave and so on, you help your neighbors, whatever, or you try to break through, but you don't even know how close they are. Uh, this was uh, totally unknown. We asked, they said, well, it's already dangerous to go. But on the other hand, we know that if the if Russians come, that they will specifically search for activists, for volunteers and so on, for pro-Ukrainian people. So both of these uh, ways were equally dangerous. So it was the choice between two you know, ways of dying. And we just decided that we choose the quick one. Because if they shoot us on our way, when we, when they stop us, and, and if we are encircled, then it's at least it's, it will be quick. We got in a car and just uh, went outside Mariupol. We were passing the burning cars, the burning tanks. We were passing uh, the ruined buildings. And then we um, we passed our checkpoints, Ukra- Ukrainian checkpoints around Mariupol. And then it was in uh, the next uh, village we see another checkpoint and we were start starting like feeling wow it's again our our army is super so but it was only first second because we when it came closer out of the fog then we saw it was a russian tank and uh, that that's when we started you know being like really really nervous and thought that that's it Luckily, the Russian troops there had only just set up. They were disorganised and preoccupied with the car in front and they waved Diana's car through. But after driving several more hours on empty highways, through the fog emerged an enormous column of tanks and military vehicles crossing the road ahead, all with the Russian Z painted on the side. We just saw the column of that uh, equipment that crossed the road. It was just endless column. And uh, we actually didn't know what to do because we were driving. We actually drove through them b- between two of uh, these machines. Wow. They pointed the gun at us. But we just, you know, showed them that uh, the hands that they are, you have to show the hands in the window that we are unarmed and so on. And luckily we were not, you know, shot by these tanks. Today, Diana's living in Kiev. She spent much of the past year raising awareness and money, her husband helping refugees escape Mariupol and watching helpless as large parts of the city they lived were destroyed. 
Well, that's the second uh, maybe worst um, feeling that I ever felt in my life. The first was, you know, being actually in Mariupol under all these shillings and with this inability to to do anything, helplessness. Because, you know, when you are there under the missiles, under this uh, really survival horror conditions, I remember the moment when I was just even praying, although I'm not, not religious at all. And I was like, please, well, is it possible for us to survive and stay, you know, in one piece, uh, me and, and my husband, and then and be not in a place that's not surrounded and i just re- literally the dream came true i am in i am in one piece with my husband and even the car is here but it didn't help i mean you didn't mm. you still didn't didn't feel satisfied or you know that the dream came true because you feel even more helpless when you are outside this survivors guilt survivals you know feeling uh that all of the others are still there and they and it's getting even worse obviously ukraine thwarted the russian invasion stopped the russian invasion but what do you see is happening to your country now what do you feel is happening now uh and we regain our subjectivity because after 2014 uh when the war started no one thought anything serious is happening well it's just some local you know conflict and now this brutality of aggression of russia and the uh, the one hand and our courage and bravery and our crazy desire to resist it have shown that we are different, that we are totally different, and we are opposites, actually, Russian and Ukraine. And no one will ever confuse us. That's that's what's happening. And we are, of course, we are winning, but with a, with a very, very high cost. It's, it's already high, and it will be even higher. Diana Berg, a former resident of Mariupol. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, The Witches, The BFG. For many, the mere mention of Roald Dahl's books brings a flood of nostalgia and childhood memories. So when publisher Puffin announced this week it was changing some of the words to make it more acceptable to modern readers, there was outrage. What gives this generation or any generation the right to get their filthy mitts on the great art of the past? The terms crazy and mad have been removed to completely avoid mental health triggers and references to colours have been changed. Which is a paragraph explaining that witches are bald beneath their wigs ends with a new line. There are plenty of other reasons why women might wear wigs and there is certainly nothing wrong with that. (laughs) Dr Denise Chapman is a lecturer in language and literacy at Monash University. We need to see them as snapshots in time. They are Polaroid snapshots. If we fold that Polaroid up, okay, I'm, I'm going old school. If we fold it up, it's going to distort what we're seeing. That's a wonderful analogy. It's so complicated, isn't it? Because, you know, looking at one of the examples this week, enormously fat has been changed to just enormous in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Now, most parents wouldn't let their child call another kid fat. Mm, But many of the characters in these books are not nice people. They're horrible, grotesque, even sort of evil. 
So what are yes. we to make of it all? <laughs> well, you know, I think that this is, it's children's literature is, in this case, this is a product of its time. You know, this is a cultural product. And so fat was the word that was used. And it absolutely captures the the, the zeitgeist, the, the popular way of talking um, of that time. You know, language is that carrier of culture. Right. And our culture changes are the context in which a given author is in changes. And so does language. Language changes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it certainly does. And as it changes, though, and as we change it, is there a risk, do you feel, that we are sanitising things too much? I mean, the, the example I have is when George Lucas changed the original Star Wars movies. Um, oh. He sanitised <laughs> the rogue smuggler hero Han Solo so that he didn't shoot first. Now, people mm. like myself and others were outraged because they felt like part of their childhood <laughs> had been kind of erased. They felt ownership over over those movies, and I, I suspect that's part of the reason People have had such a visceral reaction this week to Roald Dahl's changes. Mm-mm. Well, you know, I, 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 as a sci-fi fan, I hear you. <laughs> I completely hear you. And I think there is a moment where you think, wait a minute, but that's not how it goes. This is not how our characters are 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 meant to do X, Y, Z. But we we do need to to see this as an opportunity for us to do some some thinking. This is an opportunity for us to 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 think about, you know, what are we looking at? What what's the purpose of what what we're looking at? You know, is it to inform us? Is it to support morals, right? Is it to encourage our curiosity about the world around us? Is it to entertain, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or is it that opportunity to develop our critical thinking? Um, you know, to with a book, you know, as a parent, as a mom, you know, to to have that dialogue of reading um, with my child and to to envelop them in this curious questioning that allows you know, my children um, or my students. Um, when I was a preschool teacher, imagining. You know, imagining the characters of the book, um, imagining themselves in the book, mm. imagining and engaging with me through critical conversations so, and deep thoughts. So what are you suggesting here What that words shouldn't have been changed, but we should be thinking about how we guide children through thorny language, thorny concepts? Correct. Censorship is a slippery slope. Okay, it is it is one that um, and and this is coming from someone who remembers as you know a young black girl growing up in Virginia, not seeing the books that reflected me, right? Mm-hmm. And um and and that you know when I did some digging, uh, you know it took me a while to do some digging and to find those books. Um, and keep in mind that there was a reason why I had to dig, was because those books weren't made available. When we censor, when we go and we um, we go, we need to change this word, we need to change. And, and this happens, this happens with editors, you know, at the editor level, with the editor and the writer, this sort of, um, maybe we need to think, rethink this, um, et cetera. But when we go back to something that's already created, it is a slippery slope when it's already out there mm. because um, what happens is that censorship actually does the opposite of what we think it's going to do. 
it ordinarily we think, okay, well, we'll change this. This is the way it should be. But it actually, uh, people will actually go out um, there. And, and we know this, that they'll go out and 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 purchase the original version of the book. Because so this, is, this is ultimately just a, a commercial decision, isn't it? Because Correct. publishers Correct. are struggling. Uh, Puffin has yes. sold the rights to Netflix. And, and I guess they reckon this will sell more books in the year 2023. <laughs> well, and, and that those are the kinds of questions that I'm asking myself. I wonder if this is really a symptom of a lack of diverse authors, of diverse text, of diverse publishing staff. Okay. We, you know, where is the latest person who is raw doll in? Okay. Where's mm. that, where's that current raw doll person? Um, I think we do need to think about it also from the perspective of, of the child, because the points of view of a child from a child's perspective and the adult's perspective are going to be very different. And I'll tell you, I went back and I looked at this book. It was back in 1988 that talked about trust your children. It was entitled Trust Your Children, uh, Voices Against Censorship in Children's Literature. And in there was Roald Dahl talking about censorship. And he discussed his books um, being ones where, you know, he's taking the point of view of children, you know, that his, you know, he want that he wanted to emphasize humor, which was big at the time, you know, and so, um, and he, he, he said that, look, if children, and I quote, if children find my books amusing, if they laugh while they're reading them, I feel I've succeeded. If I offend some grown-ups in the process, so be it. It's the price I'm willing to pay. Dr. Denise Chapman, a lecturer in language and literacy at Monash University. And that's the episode for this week. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. This week is produced by Madeline Jenner, Nick Grimm, Anna John, and me, David Lipson. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.